Welcome to Counter Stories, a podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Don Eubanks, Associate Professor at Metropolitan State University and Cultural Consultant. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General for the State of Minnesota. All statements that I make during this podcast and future podcasts are attributed only to my own personal views and not to be attributed to that of my office. Anthony Galloway, Executive Director of the Artsus Center for the African Diaspora and Senior Partner at Dendros Group. And I'm Holly Lee, owner of the Other Media Group. As counter stories, um, we never quite know exactly what we're going to talk about until we get together right prior to recording one of our podcasts. And, you know, I always love this portion of our discussion because we actually have quite a bit to say and we actually get very in-depth with uh, coming up with suggestions. But tonight, I think that we were going to spend some time uh, talking about um, what it's like for us as counter stories, especially now that we've kind of left where we were previously uh, associated with. And I think we're going to delve in and explore um, that space where we as representatives from various communities of color and American Indian community often find ourselves when we're having these type of conversations, particularly when we're in white spaces, that often it alters our conversations or it alters exactly what we have to say. And I think that, you know, we were talking about that as uh, one of our possible subjects, but I really love the way that Anthony uh, Galloway kind of expressed that. So, Anthony, I was wondering if I could kick it to you and have you have you kick in with. Sure. You know, the 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 main the main thing just to get straight to it is that how we talk and bring concepts and address issues in predominantly white spaces is often very different than we do in community for various reasons. But one of the big ones that comes up for me is in predominantly white spaces, I have to worry about all of the cultural context or situational context of whatever statement that I make. And uh, to, to an audience of folks who may not understand where that's coming from or may not have that style of discourse, right? It's often more direct. It's often, um, you know, reliant on on contextual stuff that happens in community versus when I'm in community and I don't have to spend that amount of that time or provide that context. In many cases, I just decide I'm just not going to go there because it we don't have enough time to teach and talk at the same time, at least not in that space. And so I've noticed for us in Counter Stories, when we were being responsive to predominantly white audience and a predominantly white institution, um, it wasn't that we didn't address things. It was just that the way there was a difference between that 30 minutes you just described, Don, uh, when we were prepping and, and coming to see what's real on our minds and our communities today. And then once that recording was start, there would be the shift. And it was almost a seamless shift um, into a different way of talking. So I, I, yeah, and I know exactly what you're talking about because I think sometimes in our conversations before we get started, before we start recording, and then when we hit that record button, all of a sudden we may talk about the same subject, but it seems sanitized. And I think that's conceptually, you know, and I think, Luz, you also um, broadened uh, an aspect, uh, an insight on this that I'd like you to share with us also. 
Thanks, Don. I agree, uh, Anthony, with your assessment as well, and, and Don, your statement recently here. When we talk about, particularly in the business space, in our workplace, there for the last probably two, three years, there's been quite a bit of research and articles and opinions written about the authentic leader and the key word being authentic. And so there's this movement in leadership circles in the business workplace about being your authentic self. And they herald that as this major significant aspect of what a leader should do and how a leader should show up uh, to be vulnerable and to be your authentic self. And as I read those management articles and as I read those studies and I read those suggestions, a big part of me is, is sitting there thinking, sure, that works for folks of the dominant society. It doesn't work so much and very well at all, I should say, for our BIPOC communities. How are we going to be authentic with ourselves when we have to do the unpacking and education that Anthony referenced at the top of our program? That's the additional weight that we carry, the additional burden that we carry, and the additional emotional labor that we carry. And we risk then being judged by our dominant peers in the workplace for things that we shouldn't be judged, right? If, if you truly want us to be authentic, then you as a dominant member of society need to open up your mind and allow us to be authentic. But that's not going to happen when we are living still and grappling with the biases, whether implicit or explicit biases that we all know exist on a day-to-day -day basis. That's the world that we have to navigate in the workplace. So it's very disingenuous to be in the leadership position and to be expected to be, quote-unquote, authentic as a BIPOC leader when you know that it's a false expectation and narrative, right? That that standard only applies to folks from the dominant society. And if we work, like most of us find ourselves on a daily basis, working in a dominant culture as a BIPOC employee, that's that tightrope that we are navigating on a daily basis. So that's where the tension is that most people perhaps in dominant society aren't aware of and calling that out. And it comes through just in our conversation. I want to share a comment that we received from our first segment now with Ampers and our recording our podcast. And the comment was, hey, Luz, I listened to the segment and you all sounded so relaxed. And we were, right? And we were because we were actually being our authentic self because we're not in that dominant space anymore. Luz, thank you for sharing that. And one of the things that you remind me of is is this nuance, right? So I, I've been in predominant, uh, predominantly white spaces and folks have wanted my authentic self. Um, and, and I think absolutely, especially, you know, in some of the, as, as, you know, a member of, of clergy um, or a training member of clergy about to be fully ordained. Um, one of the things that um, comes up is, is, a, is a space where folks are, are willing to go a whole lot of different places. But the time it takes to 
to give the context so that the statement is actually understood in the way that I want it to in community. It, it takes time and labor and the net effect of that, even in those situations, feels it, it, the, the net outcome is exactly like what it feels like in spaces where I cannot truly be my authentic self just because the time it takes to give all of the context. The, the hard thing for me is when people say to me and people who I haven't worked with a lot, especially like with you guys, what Luz was saying, you guys sound so relaxed. You're it's because we know each other. Right. And um, I am now um, editing these podcasts. And I will tell you that um, during the last show, I think Luz said something. She was reading a statement. I just said, Luz, that doesn't sound like you put that away and just say it who you are, you know, as yourself. And we can call each other out on that because we know each other. And so it's really hard for me when I go into organizations or institutions and they say they, they want me to bring my authentic self. And sometimes when I bring my authentic self, then they get offended or it gets too heavy or, you know, it's, I, I spend a lot, like Anthony was saying, I spend a lot of time, you know, teaching or, you know, giving the context to maybe what I'm trying to say or what the point I'm trying to make to the point I'm trying to make. So when people say they want me to bring my authentic self, I, I bring it to a certain percentage more maybe, uh, than I would have if they hadn't said that. But very rarely, I would say, do I do I 100% bring my authentic self unless it is in this, in unless it's with a group of people I know, and, and sometimes even not. Um, I'll give you guys an example uh, of something that happened recently. Um, so I was working with um, a white-led organization, and they wanted to really bring out stories from communities of color, um, so I've been having these Zoom calls with their team, and um, the one of the first people that I interviewed was um, a Hmong woman who was in a biracial relationship. And, you know, the other, the, the white folks from the organization were on this Zoom call with me interviewing this Hmong woman, and we were going back and forth about, you know, our moms or things that our nieces and nephews do. And I was laughing to an extent I realized that I hadn't laughed that much in weeks of working with this white organization than I did in that one hour conversation. And and I noticed that th- that they noticed me. You know, ha- having that that different reaction. Um and it's hard for me to be like, it's not you guys, but it kind of is, but it's not, right? It's just this this comfortable feeling that you have when you're with folks from community um and that's hard to explain and I feel like that's something that now that we're doing this show ourselves we're able to we're able to be more of our authentic selves you know Flea you 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 (laughs) I think about that laughter moment that you had and the only thing in the back of my mind that was coming up for me is consequences Right. What what happens when you see what happens when you see now, there's there's a surfacey, you know, part of this, which is what happens when we're around me and my real friends group? That's going to be different than what happened when I'm with my business partners, than I'm with you all. Kind of. Yeah. Y'all, but but there's there's a there's an anxiety that comes with folks really, truly experiencing my inner core peer group full out. I'm I'm like nervous that folks will never come back. 
right? So there's there's that thing that we all share, regardless of what your background is, right? But then there's this other layer of consequence that comes up for me. That, that there's that example. But then I think Luz, you you brought this up when we were prepping for for today. There are different consequences for being your authentic self in predominantly white spaces. Uh, I've got I I have and no friends who have been let go from places because they didn't fit the culture, even though there's a welcoming of, you know, be your full authentic self. But then um, there's a passive aggressive email that goes out about your the musk you choose to wear or um, the fact that you are seen to be held to different standards of professional hair than others or, um, you know, all these little things that end up coming, leave, leaving you lower on the totem pole when it comes to, ooh, just use that reference right there, Don. You just going to let me do that? All right. Well, you, you know, I think, I think uh, to give you a practical uh, application of that is when I was hired as director of the uh, chemical health division for Department of Human Services. And I think that, you know, part of that experience or part of that happened because of my interaction with them when I was commissioner of uh, health and human services when I was at Mille Lacs. And and even that is tied to it because after in that position for two years, I would spend so much time explaining to state, county and federal officials what tribal sovereignty was. And I got tired of it. So I just acted sovereign. I said, to hell with it. You know, I just started demanding what we needed to do. So I, it, it was a, it was, I was being my uh, authentic self and just tired of having to give that explanation. But then once I got to DHS, it first started creeping in by, well, you know, now that you're here, you have to adapt to the culture that you're at. And I said, whoa, wait a minute. I thought you brought me on because of all this whole diversity effort. And you brought me in because I was a Native American person. And now you're telling me I have to change and adapt my style in order to fit the culture where I'm at. And they said, no, that's not what we said. I said, Bull, that's exactly what you just told me. You just told me I have to change and adapt to the situation where I was at. That is not respecting diversity. That was not respecting me and the strengths I believe they hired me for. And so, I mean, those are different examples, not just in how, because then if I speak up and speak against that, which I continually did, uh, then you're labeled as being angry when we're being our authentic self, right? Another meeting, a comment was made, or I made the comment that one of our divisions that handles and works with Minnesotans with disabilities had very, I had one African-American woman that worked in there, one. Yep. And then they were wondering why they weren't successful in communities of color in American Indian community. So I pointed out to them, you don't have anyone in your division that looks like the communities you're trying to work with. So how do you expect to be successful? And their response was, well, that's why we hired you. And no, 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 no. That's not why you hired me. But again, that's that, you know, and then once you once you refute what they tell you, then you're that angry employee. Then you're not the game player. Then you're not being a part of that team. That's how we always have to navigate those situations. 
That's that tightrope situation, Don, that you, you know, you illustrated so well with your example there. There's that tightrope that you're, you're walking that very fine line, right? And the expectations versus what you want to do and what these consequences are. I would add a couple more examples. So in my, in our culture as a Latina, a Latinx community, we are, you know, we are passionate. You know, you listen to our vocabulary, you listen to our music. We are passionate people. But it is often misconstrued as being, quote unquote, too emotional. I worked at uh, a workplace where it was largely uh, a white dominant workspace. Um, and folks were very proud of how progressive and liberal they were. And when we were in meetings and a colleague of mine who either was in the meeting or perhaps wasn't, too often my colleagues would say, well, you know, she's really emotional anyway. And, and, and it was a constant thing. And I would find myself correcting them and say, no, she is not emotional. She is passionate about her values. And if you were to flip that in dominant space, being passionate about something is actually something that is a plus. It's an asset, right? It's, oh, this leader is so passionate about this and that's what they do. So they often then misconstrue, to your point, Don, our values and our way of thinking and acting and living our culture to be a negative when it's applied to us, but yet it's a positive when it's applied in dominant society. So there's that double-edged sword, right? So as a result of that, I have found myself to be more self, you know, self um, scrutinizing, and and not be as quote unquote passionate about it because I don't want folks to misconstrue that and and say that I'm being emotional about something if I am pursuing something with rigor or with zeal right and and that's again the consequences as Anthony was saying earlier that we have to be very cognizant about in terms of our professional growth and our professional careers and how we are viewed by management and other professionals who are trying to then put us into these tropes that are completely unfair to us, right? But they continue to hold on to these things. You lose, you just keep bringing examples full forward to my mind, because I, I think another layer of this, in addition to the consequence, in addition to the context and the labor, you, you said that, Luz, the the labor that goes into it, that's, that's a huge deal. What also is coming up to me, though, too, is the things... <laughs> The stereotypes and assumptions that have some reality to it. So, um, and 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 then what what people do with that? There are times where I have, I have, <laughs> I have done something stereotypically black, all right, and or made a statement or something like that that confirmed uh, a, a well held stereotype or assumption about the about the black folks as a monolith, right? Um, 
Uh, let me just go ahead and say it. So I'm sitting outside of our church and it's a bunch of the men from the men's group. We were getting ready to go in and do, it's our men's chorus. So we were getting ready to go in and sing and, and stuff. We do a lot of acapella um, arrangements, both traditional and, and, and contemporary. And we just sound good. And we're sitting outside and it's warm outside. And we decided that we're going to sing, right? Just sing out there. And so the picture for us is we're outside in a, place where it feels good in our community and we just gonna sing we even have our our our, our friend brooks who's a white guy in the group um, we call him white chocolate because the because the brother can sing in in the tradition in a way that isn't isn't common in my experience and so he he, he has a level of getting it right so we're singing and we're having a good time folks are driving by white folks who are driving by are looking out the window and we're looking at them and Without saying it, the rest of us get a little quieter. And and Brooks kind of looks up and, goes, and just kind of looked up because we were all in in this trance together, just getting good notes, good harmonies. It was great. And he realizes and he calls out and he asks us, you know, why would y'all all of a sudden get you look like y'all got self-conscious. And without saying it, all the all the rest of the group who are black men, we ended up getting into a conversation because Guess we had we were sitting around the table in front of the church. We were sitting around the table in front of the church with food. We were sitting around the table in front of the church with watermelon. We were sitting outside of the table in front of the church with fried chicken. And it could just be comfort food space of good eats in a in a in a in a, in, in its own perfect universe. However, we all got real self-conscious that we were sitting outside as a black predominantly black group singing eating watermelon and fried chicken and felt some kind of way about that because we were concerned about feeding this stereotype. How many times have you made a, a reference that's in your, in your culture community and then the white folks in your office space take it and run with it too far? And so there's a piece of that that is also with, at, at play with me as well. I, I hate when I prove stereotypes right. <laughs> You know, and, and, you know, I get it. Like, stereotypes all come from something, some grain of truth. But li- this is, I literally had this conversation the other day with my husband. Uh, that same conversation that I was telling you guys about, uh, where I, like, connected with this woman and we were talking. And then I realized we had met before. And I, I f- and then I, I really kicked myself in the butt because there is this, you know, all Asians know each other idea especially like all Hmong people know each other and I really hate when I do it right <laughs> when you know when <laughs> when I'm working with white people and they're like hey do you know my Vang and I'm like yeah how many like which one you know <laughs> and then we go out and we meet a my Vang and I'm like hey I know really. it's like oh dang <laughs> yeah, I'm, hey I've said that to my and own I, business I, partners Lee Lee I've said that to my own business partners where I'm like you know, we don't all know each other. And so they are like, oh, we can't assume that Anthony knows them. But actually, oh, wait, wait, wait. No, no, that's so-and-so, that's so-and-so, that's so-and-so. That person, though, yes, I do know. <laughs> I hate to feed it. But at the same time, I was like, oh, thank God I know this Hmong woman here. But, you know? and <laughs> but that's This because- is something you're going to encounter in Minnesota that you don't encounter the same way in places where there's more people in your community space. I can't I go to Atlanta and feel the same thing. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I mean, we have a small enough population that that allows that to happen. But also, the two of you in particular are very well community-driven and rooted. So 
you are reaping the rewards of the effort and time that you spent in community building those networks, which would be unique to you, right? Uh, and I, I know I find myself in that situation as well. And I have to ask myself, am I going to fight, you know, admitting that I know this person because I don't want to, you know, bring some truth to that. Uh, and then, you know, you kind of just will, I, I often find myself qualifying it to say, oh, yes, I know them through this association or this work to contextualize it so that I can, in the same time, kind of dispel that stereotype with one fell swoop. But, you know, I think, I think part of our discussion and what we're kind of tippy-toeing around or not tippy-toeing, but just, you know, kind of walking throughout and among um, is this idea that, you know, we are all part of this American culture. And, you know, this American culture is based on this uh, Anglo-Saxon Protestant work ethic, you know, was set up for white Europeans. And so it's their cultures and norms that are kind of in place, and then the rest of us either adapt, assimilate, or or whatever according to it, and and so you know that, and and so you know this nuance in terms of what we're talking about is is a result of that, and and um, you know because you know when I think about this discussion, I think about you know how we how we aren't always our authentic self when we find ourselves in those white spaces, and it's because often. We, we know that, that uh, what we actually feel or what we've actually experienced, if we truly were to share those experiences in its raw form, it would scare our white counterparts to death. And it feeds into their stereotype thinking that, oh, we're so, we're all just angry. And, 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 and I think it feeds into their fear that, we will do to them what they have done to us for the past 500 years, which is what, of course, is not on my mind whatsoever. I just want to live together and have a good time, right? Enjoy the, enjoy the fruits of this country. You know, my ancestors were here. You know, part, part of it is this frustration that, you know, since I got off the boat, whichever boat you, you know, you want to name first, it doesn't matter that, you know, um, we've had to learn who they are. And they've never had to learn who we are. I mean, as, as American Indian, as Native, as Indigenous individuals, they've never had to learn who we truly are. They've never had to learn who anyone else is other than white Europeans because the idea is that everybody comes here and conforms to that. And if you don't, you're the other. And so... That, you know, I mean, I'm just saying, I'm just explaining, this is the space that we find ourselves in, and this is what adds to our frustration. It's this idea that that um, our white counterparts have never had to well, learn about who we are and who, and and, who we and truly let's are. let's be, I mean, if we're going to stop tiptoeing, you know, Professor Don, then let's go ahead and stop tiptoeing <laughs> that when you include, when you say that they have never had to learn about us, that is inclusive of all of our communities about each other as well. We we you know exactly. so let's 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 turn inward as well and 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 show that that we haven't had to do that to the same degree. Ho- however, <laughs> there is a proximity that allows me to, that 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 
tends to allow some folks to walk walk a little bit further along that path before you start talking out your pocket, you know, out your behind. So my proximity to Native communities because of Minnesota's experience and because of where I grew up in relation to Native folks, there's some transfer that happens a little bit more. Right. Plea, you and I have talked, you know, quite a bit about Hmong greens versus black greens and the ways that we can have some connections, except that we take on to 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 Don's point, these ways of being and these normings that allow that turn, have us turn around and produce similar spaces that make it hard for somebody else to be inauthentic. So we aren't we aren't devoid of our own internalized uh, actions in support of this white supremacy, right? And so that's important to, to, to bring forward, too. I mean, that's very important because, you know, being, you know, being an individual that that traverses between multiple cultures and multiple communities and 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 uh and experiencing the black community experiencing the american indian community um you know having family having relatives having that culture as a blended individual and you see you know there are so many similarities and yet there are there is so much misunderstanding and and um and you know the impact the impact that the dominant culture has on everyone else that comes to this country bleeds and runs deep. I still remember, you know, I, I still remember Richard Pryor in one of his uh, albums talking about when the Hmong first were coming to America. And he, and I remember a line he said, he said, I don't have any problem with the Hmong until they learn how to say the N word. I mean, I still remember that line, and 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 the and the and the thing is, is that he was speaking truth. I mean, that's a hard truth, but we knew that once people come to this country, they get impacted by those negative stereotypes and biases that permeate our culture, that permeate this 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 culture, that even those of us within our own communities suffer from a, 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 a friend of mine was at a was at uh, the powwow grounds in, in south minneapolis and he bumped into a former viking football player um who's a mixture like me right he was uh, uh joey browner right part black part native american and he just made a comment of the fact that he bumped into him at powwow grounds on his Facebook page, and one of the first comments that a Native American guy posted on his Facebook thing was was uh, was commenting that the the guy who took the photo and posted the picture on his Facebook page, this Native American's comment was, "Oh, you're darker than Joey Browner was," and the implication of that comment falls into this, you know, and I know we've talked about colorism, you know, in other conversations we've had, but, you know, colorism impacts so many of our communities. Native American, Latino, I mean, it just impacts our communities and it's something that we've picked up from that dominant culture. But we also, but also that it's not just for folks who come to this country, right? When I, when I go abroad um, and in Hmong villages that I've visited, People ask me, like, is it really like black people are so violent? You know, it's what they see. It's what they see in the media. 
I mean, uh, you know, it's what they see in movies. It's what they see on TV. It's what they read in the newspapers. It's, it's, it's already ingrained in folks before they even come to this country. So, so you're saying that experience happens before they even yes. get here? Yes. Wow. Media is that. I mean, dating back to the Vietnam War. I mean, there are countless of stories where our troops who are African-American troops going to fight on behalf of our country were being targeted for just violent behavior while fighting in Vietnam because of their skin color, right? And that that is how many decades ago, right? Um, and it's, I agree with Haley, it's, it's so tied to the media here in the U.S. and how the media just continues to perpetuate these tropes uh, about Black folks, about my community, about all of our communities, right? There, there are these mm-hmm. negative stereotypes that continue to be perpetuated, and this is 2020, right? We continue to see that without any filters, and folks are then, as a result, having to pay the price uh, across the, the world, right? Even with the the protests associated with George Floyd's murder, if you listen to some of the news responses uh, from other countries, there were commentators um, and and certainly folks that were being interviewed. I know I listened to a number of them who were just saying, look, you know, there was nothing wrong with the killing of George Floyd. And and he was at fault, right? And And completely, you know, if he hadn't engaged in that behavior with with the twenty dollar uh, bill, that this would never have happened, right? And so, completely missing the point that is intended to be understood in terms of the criminal justice system and abusive police practices that should not be in place at all. Luce, you, you did it again. You just you keep adding these layers of nuance. So we've talked in terms of authentic self or when you can be, right? We've talked about the, you know, not being fully authentic in in spaces where it it takes too much energy to set the context. We've talked about the consequence that has ensued when we've been authentic self. And we've talked about, you know, not wanting to feed into stereotypes and even the nuance of our internalized stereotypes that we have against each other as it retains our authentic self. Lose the point you just made um, adds another layer when we start talking about the, the things that meet folks before they even get here um, in, in all those different layers. I'm now also thinking about the times when I'm in predominantly white spaces and I'm not fully my authentic self. One of the things that is at play as well is the concern about what happens when um, folks want they want you to be your authentic self in a certain box. But then if I if I if I get any sense whatsoever that I am assuaging, you know, dominant cultural tropes about how I should be, I also do some retreating back in that space as well, because because the last thing I want to do is start to feed uh, somebody else's comfortability or somebody else's understanding of stereotypes about who I am. So there's this interesting dance that happens there as well. Again, all of these are things that we have to calculate and take context of, right? And it, and, and, and other folks don't. And there's an inequity that results from that. And then there's a, there's a fatigue that comes in as a result of that. 
Oh man. Okay. So <laughs> I'm I'm sitting around, and this is this is K twelve circle. So I'm sitting around with a whole bunch of educational leaders, and. I'm 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 making comments about mm, see this is how we do in my family and it was a space where we were trying to be authentic self and I'm like I'm just gonna come out and say and we were talking about direct versus indirect communication that happens in different spaces and it was a really good cultural exchange but what I found is as I began to talk there began to be this rhythm of leaning in to what Anthony's about to say and then all of a sudden folks in that space start to mm-hmm to give give kind of stereotypical call and response cues for African-American people, which I thought was very culturally specific because they were responding within stereotypes of specific to black folks. And they were Latinx folks. There were other folks who they weren't respond. The responses of, mm, I hear you, I feel you and all that kind of stuff. There began to be this kind of lean in to, ooh, ooh. And, and, and my fear was that I was giving folks permission to put on a costume of black in response to a quote unquote affirming what I was saying about how we like to be direct. I had to have a come to Jesus moment all of a sudden. And I found myself starting to seemingly get comfortable with more colloquial statements. And then all of a sudden, as I start to see other folks, you know, like one guy put up a fist and I'm like, Oh crap. Is this, am I, am I the safe black man that's giving everybody permission to put on black costume right now? And all of a sudden I had to, Oh, I got too comfortable. So what do you do, Anthony? What do you do when, when, when maybe you've met somebody a couple times, you're friendly, and then they do something like call your brother? Well, uh, okay, that happens all the time in church circles. White Christians, because I'm, I'm, that's my faith background and tradition, are quick to refer to you as brother. And I've, and I've, I've been meaning, and I got I to gotta have this conversation with some folks, because I'm always wondering, are you calling me brother because you want to try it on? And then, and then if I push back, you're just going to be like, oh, I'm in it in the Christian sense. So I got the devil in there. Or, you know, or is there something deeper at, deeper here? And so one of the things that I have to do is, uh, is start to kind of check and say, all right, here's what I'm noticing. And I just want to check and see where this is coming from for you and and, and see what the response is going to be. If you know, but but usually, usually that's only with folks who like Brooks, who I spoke to. He's been around us. He's spent time. He's sweat. He's the kind of close relation that can actually come into your house and make a sandwich. He can come into my house and make a sandwich in my cupboard. Right. That's real relationship. I, Anthony, I, I think a different nuance of that <clears throat> is a story I shared, I think years ago on one of our counter stories podcasts. And it, 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 uh, it concerned my son, right? You know, and so, you know, my wife is white. And and um, and so uh, our son, when he was about five years old, and he has many cousins who are all white on, on my wife's side of the family. And uh, but when we would get together with her side of the family, when he turned five, I noticed that a couple of the relatives, when they would greet our son, would walk up to him and say, put their hand out and say, slap me five. And, but I never noticed them do that same thing with any of his other white cousins. And that it, it began to bother me that they were taking this nuanced idea they had of how we greet one another in the black community and they started greeting my son it, it um <clears throat> with with that uh, affirmation and 
and it, it it's it's akin to being in those spaces where where folks would kind of look at us and and make a determination on our ability based maybe on our physical attributes. You know, how how often have we heard individuals from the dominant culture comment on our kids, our children, our cousins, our relatives, or whatever, and with the comments, oh, you know, guy, you're tall, you you know, you're going to be a basketball player. Or, you know, right away our attributes are associated with our physical powers. And, and so, you know, these are all different kind of nuances of what we're talking about in terms of being in a space um, of uh, having to navigate through this kind of space. Because how do I bring that? How did I, you know, back then, how do I bring that up with offending the individual who was because they, you know, they were related? I mean, I know they meant well. Right. They probably didn't even give it a, a second thought, but yet that bothered the, the heck out of me. Right. And so it's those kind of I think it's it, it's those kind of nuances that we have to navigate around that we find ourselves either. You know, I mean, you know, some of us navigate it. Some of us just throw it right back in somebody's face. I mean, you know, I think the way we respond varies. You know, I'm not a very hateful individual, so my my, you know, my response is not to hurt someone. But you know, how do I how do I creatively address this in a manner that's not going to make them feel bad because they weren't doing it to to make anyone feel bad, right? But see, you know, Don Don, your 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 point is 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 great in response to Lee's question about what do you do exactly because you just brought up the fact that. It depends on what time and what day you call me. And if somebody didn't just reach out and touch my hair and target again, um, who don't know me or have anything like that and pet me as this cultural object. Yes. Like if, if you catch it, it depends on when I have energy for and what, if my tank is full, I have more grace to kind of meet what you are and help work across that and bridge that. But you're going to catch me in moments where my tank is just empty and, and I've got months of empty since George Floyd, but um, and even more so since my classmate Philander was murdered. So so how I approach that is very different depending on how much grace I've stored up. Catch me Sunday after service, especially if I've preached. I'm going to have a lot more grace. But by Wednesday, a lot of that's been drained out. And I think I think that needs to be said, though. I think it, the por- important part of, of saying this is that sometimes when I don't correct people or. Um, so I'll give you an example. I, I was shopping at Target before Christmas some one year and a woman a white woman walked up to me with um some i was in the cooking utensils area uh, area and she came up to me and she said is are these the kind of uh, the kind of utensils you used to make stir fry and in that moment right i had a mo i had the chance to be like yo lady just because i'm asian doesn't mean i make stir fry you know and educate her but uh, honestly i just said yeah that would work you know, I had a long day. I knew she, honestly, she really probably didn't mean anything by it, except that she was trying to buy somebody a gift. And, you know, I was with a friend and my friend said, why, you know, why didn't you correct her? Like, why did you, you know, that was such a microaggression moment. And I was just like, you know, man, I'm tired. And 
this doesn't mean that I'm not proud of who I am or I'm not proud of my background or whatever, whatever. It just means that, you know, we, we can't be teaching all the time and sometimes we're tired and I'm never going to see this lady again. And honestly, she just needed to know what spoon to buy. You know what I mean? And so if you see us out and we don't correct folks or we don't take the time to do it, it's not that we're, we don't want to educate people. It's not that we don't want to correct people. It's not that we don't want to teach people. It's just that we're tired too. Holly, I'm so glad you framed it that way. When we think about the examples that you and Anthony and Don shared with us right now, it is about these microaggressions. And when I'm out there teaching about microaggressions, what I often say to folks, look, it's like a mosquito bite. And actually, there's a really good video on YouTube that explains this. And, and this is where I, I actually, full disclosure, saw it for the first time. If you have one mosquito bite one day, you know, it's not a big deal. But if you have 10 mosquito bites today, 10 mosquito bites tomorrow, 10 mosquito bites the next day, and it goes every single day, guess what? By the time you are at 30, 20, 50 mosquito bites, it's beyond a nuisance, right? It is taxing, it is draining, and you get to be just in a fit in terms of wanting to get rid of it and wanting to be done with it and not wanting to be exposed to any more mosquito bites, translated, any more microaggressions, right? And so we find ourselves in that space where depending on where we're at and how many microaggression moments we've had to endure during that time, we'll begin to define what our tolerance level is. And it's something that is unique to BIPOC folks that we have to face day in, day out. And we don't know if today is going to be 10 microaggressions or 50 microaggressions or two microaggressions. We do know that we will be exposed. I will share with you quickly that recently I did a presentation on Latinx Heritage Month and microaggressions to avoid. And I think I had about 16 and I put them on, you know, PowerPoint, shared them with folks and gave examples, personal examples. And the feedback from the attendees was very positive. Hey, we learned a lot, so on and so forth. I kept getting all these emails. Then I got this one email. And the email There's was, always that one. <laughs> the email was along the lines of great job with your presentation. And it was very provocative. Th those were his words. It was from a male, um, white male. Your, your content was very provocative. And I'm thinking, what part of that was provocative? I mean, I seriously just shared the examples of microaggressions that I have endured within the workspace and outside of the workspace and just in society as a, as a whole. And one of them being just the pronunciation of my name and people not making the commitment or the effort to say loose versus Luz, right? <laughs> Which I get often. Or me having to spell my name loose three times, even though it only has three letters. And me constantly having to ask folks, and, and, and again, this depends on how many microaggressions I've been exposed to in a day, where I will stop them. Whenever, whenever I say my name, I will, I will spell it very methodically. I will say L-U-Z, the Z as in zebra, so that people hear it clearly. And then people say, ask me, spell it again. I will spell it the sec second time. And then when they ask me, spell it third time, 
Then I will ask them, what is it about three letters that I have to repeat three times? What is it about your understanding of these three letters that I have to repeat it three times? Because if my name were Liz, would I have to repeat it more than once? And then the conversation gets really quiet. (laughs) And I say, my name is pretty much loose and Liz with the exception, the difference being one vowel. Switch out the I and Liz to you and you have my name. And it gets really quiet. <laughs> but that's my way of kind of like, look, I'm done. I'm done having I'm done having to spell my three letter name three times. I don't even try to do Luz Maria which is actually my real name, because I don't want to further complicate things, right? But that's what we find ourselves constantly doing. And that emotional labor day in and day out gets pretty old. Well, there's a there's a gender overlay to that for you two there as well. There is so much. That only adds so to much it. of a gender overlay from everything you've said today, Lou. <laughs> so I've just been like, it could be because we're people <laughs> of color. It could be because we're women. So that's yet another layer of things you have to contend with in the question of whether I should show up my authentic self. I want to ask the question, not just on the consequences that are bad for us, but there are times where I'm not on my authentic self because I don't think this whole, whatever's happening here could, could not could handle it, but would handle it in a way that doesn't work negatively in, in my favor long-term. I think about um, one of the things that it was used to happen when I was young growing up is that the decibel, Right. So there's a little autism in this as well. But the decibel level at which we would really have conversations is not conducive to your your standard normed traditional space, uh, predominantly white space. Right. It always brought suspicion. It always brought and folks always thought we were fighting when we were. That's just how we talked um, it back and forth. I think about we had a family call recently dealing with a, a, a very serious family issue. And one of the parts of that call was me joking with my aunties because everybody got onto the call and all the sisters on the call had bonnets on. Now, in community, that just makes sense. If it's eight o'clock and it's preparation for bed, you wrapping them edges up. You you are wearing the bonnet and or the head wrap or whatever it is, and nobody's gonna say anything about that. What happened when the other day, and, and that was fine in that space. What happened the other day with us when we were about to record a promo video? First thing I did instinctually was I started to take off the do-rag because I can't do that and be out and split like that calculation happens before you even think about it. So, so there's also a piece of this where it's like, if I were my full authentic self at the loudness level, at the directness level, at the joke busting level, because that was happening on this family call as well. I was clowning everybody who had an Erica Badu head, head wrap on, not in a make fun of you kind of way, but in an acknowledgement like that's right where your head, head wrap um, and you look like you might give me a tarot reading like we we're busting jokes back and forth. But that was fine. Wait a minute. Anthony, you know, you were just talking about uh the different nuances between, you know, the Eubanks side of my family and my wife's side of the family. And I thought that only existed in, in, in those examples. You know what I mean? But, but, you know, and it, it, it's so true that the cultural differences and just communication, you know, the Eubanks side of my family, when we get together and we talk, it's loud. 
It's just, that's how it is. It's just loud. And it's misconstrued by being angry. No, we're not angry. You ain't seen us angry. You just see us talking, right? We're just, you know, wait till we get mad. Then that's a whole different thing. But we just, our communication styles are different, right? You know, I was thinking about what Lou said in terms of of, of these microaggressions. And, you know, I think I think for, uh, to help maybe some of the, um, well, I don't know if anyone needs help to understand what we're talking about. But, you know, the thing that came to my mind while Luz was pointing that out was that for the past four years, I think, you know, the fact that we have a new president elect has a lot to say about about people voting um, because for four years, I think they feel that they were suffering through these microaggressions. You know what I'm talking about? You know, and, and, and so I think that's one way for people to kind of look at this um, if they're having a hard time understanding what we're talking about in terms of communities of color and, and American Indians, because we are under assault all the time. You know, just little minor things from having people lock their car door when I'm standing on a street corner or, you know, just making comments. You know, the you know, the I know there are so many times people want to look at me and say, what, what, what? what are you? <laughs> you know what I mean? And, um, uh, because they look at it cause I'm, you know, I have one, I have one of those looks where depending on where I go, when I went to uh, New York, they thought I was Puerto Rican. When I went to Mexico, they thought I was Mexican. When I went to Hawaii, they thought I was Hawaiian. The only place they didn't fit in was where I was from, right? The twin cities. And so, but anywhere else where I went, I seemed to fit in. Um, but I know people up here look at me all the time and say, what the hell are you? And, um, but that's just part of that nuance. That's just part of that, part of the discussions. It's, it's part of that, you know, our, our whole, you know, I know in one of these segments that we said that we were going to talk about, you know, really delve into some of these tougher subjects, some of these tougher kind of discussions I know we're going to have. And one of them are, are those nuances between our communities, right? And, and those un, unsaid things and, 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 and the same kind of, the same kind of biases and prejudicial ideas and all that kind, that kind of gets spread from the dominant culture down also spreads out. And, and, um, and, and our communities suffer from that. And, and, you know, I know in one segment before we talked about the browning of America and, uh, you know, by 2040, we talked about the browning of America and what we didn't talk about in that, in that discussion was the, was the reaction from the dominant culture to the browning of that America. And I think we just went through four years of that. And I don't think that we're at the end of that also, because I think that, that base is still going to be around. So, you know, there, there are things in this country that, that, um, you know, need addressing that need to be, um, uh, for us to move away forward. But also in, in part of that discussion, we talked about, you know, um, that even in, and I think that when I, when I bring the subject up in the classroom and I talk about the fact that even though, brown people will be in a majority, I say that I don't think that's going to bring any greater understanding between us communities of color and American Indian community. Um, even though white folks, you know, as a group will still be the largest minority, but 
there'll be more brown people than there'll be white. But, you know, I remember ending that conversation saying that until we start having those conversations, it's not, it doesn't bring us any more understanding. I don't think the average Latino knows anything about me as a Native American, and they'll be the largest group. And so there's a lot of communication and discussion we need to have amongst and between ourselves in this nuanced area. And I really look forward to having that conversation on Counter Stories in one of our upcoming episodes, or maybe many of our upcoming episodes. thing that I think needs to set us apart from how we are coming together now versus how we've come together before. Because before, whether we wanted to or not, we were calculating making sense to white audiences. In this new iteration, we're no longer using that as a calculus, even though we hope that everybody listens, but but the framing is not going to be for the understanding of dominant culture. It's going to be, to your point, Don, to unpack these deep nuances between us that that may require somebody listening to go have to go look something up. And we'll do our best to, to you know, we, we use the term BIPOC, um, Black uh, Indian people of color. There's a, that's the current usage and that changes day in and day out. We'll explain things just so we can have some shared conversation. But I think the root of all of this, especially in the question of authentic self, is, is being true to us for the purpose of us not for the purpose or the calculation of what it means across somebody else. And I think that is an important thing that everybody can share, regardless of your background. If you can be in touch with who you are and how you be, that gives me something to actually work with um, instead of jumping jumping across all these areas of assumption that forces us to have to calculate whether it's safe or not to be authentic self. So that means I can have a chicken wing in one hand and eat and eat fry bread and wild rice in the other. And folks move on and, and for folks to move on with their life and not attribute that or fixate on the the stereotypes that make that make sense to me. Right? That's the thing that I want to I want to hold. I want to be able to drink a grape soda and not have immediately folks around go, "Oh, mm-hmm, see how they do." Or right? sing in front of the church eating watermelon and chicken. Come on. I don't care. Y'all can eat me, eat as many noodles as you want, because I will not stop doing that no matter how many white people be looking at me. <laughs> Give me that rice and noodles. The more that people, our listeners of all backgrounds, hear our our stories and our lived experiences, I think the better position folks are going to be to begin to formulate new ideas and new thoughts about not only their understandings and how they proceed and, and begin to incorporate how they look at other people who are different than themselves, but also have an open mind about, okay, they need to just dispel those myths in their minds. You know, and, and again, to your point earlier, you know, Hilly, it's not limited to to just a dominant society. I mean, I my husband is is African American and I remember with clarity and we've been together 33 years with clarity his mom early on in our relationship when we were talking about preparing dinner she said to me so you're just going to make another Mexican dish tonight for him and I was like what <laughs> and, and and she said you know you know that's that's what you cook right and I said, and I asked her, I'm like, what? And she's, she said, you know, Mexican food, that's what you do. 
and I, and I had to respectfully say very, you know, <laughs> uh, very cautiously, you know, it's my mother-in-law, you know, no, yes, I do make Mexican food and I'm, I'm really good at it, uh, but I make a whole lot of other food. I make, you know, just Italian food, you know, I make, you know, dishes that, that are associated with, you know, with the Asian community. I, I make food that that is East Indian. I mean, I make all kind of food because we'd like to really expand our horizons. But those types of held beliefs that, that somehow were formed along the way um, still are present, you know, uh, today. And, and that, that certainly happened a while ago, but there are other examples I can share with you that are far more recent than that. And I think the more that people are exposed to lived experiences that are different than their own, that empowers folks to recalibrate how they think about folks who are not like themselves and begin to welcome and and um, incorporate those lived experiences and normalize them in a way that have not been normalized in the past. This is an interesting spot for us to go deeper in a future conversation, because I, I think that exchange between between your husband's mom and you also had a layer of how you going to cook the things my son needs to cook culturally. How you going to like there's there's a simultaneous check that. I would love to dive into because the ways that we authentically in, in our authentic self space that mamas, daddies, aunties, cousins check other folks. Um, I because I only bring this up because I dated a Latina uh, girl and a Latinx girl, and it was interesting that when we got together, one of my other friends, their, her mom checked them. Um, for her older brother, um, when he brought his girlfriend around, she gave the same check, like, oh, you just going to make, um, and she was white. So she was like, oh, you just going to make, and she, she, she mentioned something that, that I can't remember what the dish was, but the point was to say something bland to check and see if this, and, and, she, and she, she, her response was awesome. She was like, <laughs> she was like, yeah, well, until you try my menudo, you're going to, you're going to have to check something. And she came straight for and me and everybody else our reactions were like, whoa, you just, nope, this ain't going to work. And she checked her. They had knockdown drag outs fights, right? But at the end of the day, don't nobody get protected more in the family interactions than, than his now wife. <laughs> because she not just held her own, but she she reached out to do some understanding. Now, I wouldn't have taken that approach because that would in my family, that might have get you cut. But the idea is that I'm pushing and doing some shots across the bow to check and see if you're going to listen, if you're going to cower away. There's there's an interesting thing that happens on these authentic, authenticity checks that I don't think we've delved into yet in our conversation. On the other hand, my, my grandma's like, so I guess you only eat white people food now. <laughs> So Do you have a your... rice cooker? Does Jim, <laughs> my husband, does Jim eat pepper like we eat pepper? Ooh, okay, okay, okay. So in the spirit of Professor Don telling us not to tiptoe around. So we've been talking about authentic self and the ways that our conversations now are different and how outside of dominant cultural and dominant, dominantly white spaces, there's a different conversation that tends to happen for all the reasons we talked about. But there are also moments when I've held back from being quote unquote my authentic self and had somebody in culture come to me and was like, bruh, how come you didn't 
How come you didn't just go there? How come you didn't say it? How come you let that do that? So there's also this pressure in community to be more authentic in predominantly white spaces. And and I feel like that drains on me too. But, you know, I think, uh, you know, what I, what we're touching on now, and I, and I think we, you know, we're getting close to wrapping up here, but I think that, you know, our experiences in, 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 uh, in the United States and America, especially for communities of color and American Indians and, and, and different ethnic racial groups that find themselves here is, you know, what I'm hearing is this, you know, we, we have all gone through this acculturation process, but during that acculturation process, there's this, there's this um, need for our cultures to keep our identities and, and because our identities are so tied up in, into who we are and who our cultures are that I, you know, I think that each one of our cultures have these things in place that that is that is that tension between assimilation and acculturation. And I think that, you know, that's a much that that's a whole nother couple show discussion in terms of what that means. Let alone, you know, because, you know, even within the American Indian community, I, you know, I'm not, or, you know, as I explained to the classroom, you know, we, we categorize Hmong with Karen, with everyone else, and we, we throw them under this label called Asian, and they do the same thing with American Indians. They, they put us under this label called American Indian, and there are 500 and over 570 federally recognized tribes, and I even hate using that term. Because saying 576 federally recognized tribes means that um, only the United States can determine who is a tribe and who is Indian. Think about that. We as a people don't have the ability to do that legally in this country. So even within that, I mean, so there's so much that we need to unpack and unravel. Um, and, and I really look forward, you know, I look forward to our counter stories. I look forward to us coming together in these podcasts because it's one of the few times I feel relaxed and comfortable to be able to have these kind of discussions, knowing that I'm not offending anyone else because we're just expressing who we are and, and what we feel. And, and for the first time for four years, I feel like a, a weight is almost completely lifted off of us, Right. And so, you know, I think that tonight we've touched on all these different subjects. We talked about nuances. We talked about this. We've talked about that. And I'm excited. We're counter stories. We're back. I'm Don Eubanks, associate professor and cultural consultant. Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General for the State of Minnesota. Anthony Galloway, Senior Partner at Dendros Group and Executive Director of Arts Us. I'm Holly Lee, owner of the Other Media Group. Just a reminder that as we are preparing to get back on air with Amper's Radio, you can follow us on Facebook for updates and shares and resources and connect with us there. We're also planning on doing a show answering questions from listeners. So if you have a question that you'd like to ask all of us or one of us, you can head over to our Facebook page and find the link to our form there. This program is a co-production of Counter Stories Crew, the other media group, and Amphers. 
diverse radio for Minnesota's communities with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.